Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Today, we have with us a world-leading expert on Austrian economics, professor of economics at the Business School at Loyola, at Loyola University, and senior fellow at the Mises Institute. It is my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Walter Block. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. As always, first, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself, Dr. Block, and tell us a little bit about your work and your economic and social ideology. Well, uh, I'm a professor of economics at Loyola University, New Orleans, and I have a PhD from Columbia in, in economics, and um, I'm a fellow of the Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama, and I um, follow libertarianism and Austrian economics, and my main claim to fame is I once shook hands with Ludwig von Mises. And I never washed my hands since. Now, my hand's a little dirty, but if you shake my hand, you channel Mises. So that's my main claim to fame. And also, I beat Hayek and in chess. So those are my two main claims to fame. And um, if I'm not mistaken, you went to high school with Bernie Sanders. Is that correct? I did, but I don't think that that's my claim to fame. Um, Bernie and I were buddies. Uh, we were on the track team. And my uh, Bernie Sanders joke is as follows. Not that funny, but it's the best I can do. Bernie Sanders never ran away from anything in his life. Very courageous. He never ran away from socialism, even before socialism was as popular as it now is, based in large part to his efforts. Uh, he not only doesn't run away from uh, ex-convicts voting, but even convicts voting. But there's one person from whom he runs away, and that's me. Why? Because uh, we were on the track team together. We ran the same distances, a uh, half mile and up. And he was one of the best runners in the whole city, and I was a mediocre runner. So we'd start off with the same starting line, and then he ran away from me. I'd see the rear end of him <laughs> around the track. Uh, that's my joke. Well, what an incredible background, the, the sorts of people you've gotten to know. Um... I've read up on your work, um, especially on your Defending the Undefendable series, where you take a difficult scenario and you evaluate them from a libertarian point of view in order to determine whether or not a, a certain action should be illegal. So to begin, I wanted to pose a few philosophical situations to you, and I want you to tell me whether or not you think such actions should be illegal. Just to clarify, I don't mean whether they are morally right or whether you would endorse such an action, but simply whether or not you think it should incur punishment. So firstly, I wanted to start off with what has been a bit of a gray area in the libertarian legal philosophy, um, which is the extent to which the, the law should advocate for children. I think we can all agree that refusing to say feed your newborn child and agreeing it to and allowing it to die is indisputably illegal. But what about refusing to feed your 16 or 17-year-old and kicking them out of the home? Although they have the ability to work, um, would you say that parents who abandon their near-adult children uh, under a libertarian philosophy should incur punishment? Well, first of all, let me uh, compliment you on making the distinction between favoring something and favoring uh, uh, the legalization of something. For example... I favor the legalization of pornography and prostitution and um, uh, addictive drugs. Uh, uh, do I favor those things themselves? No, I oppose all of those things. I, I don't think they're very good. I don't think prostitution, pornography, um, uh, uh, addictive drugs are very good for you. I think uh, people shouldn't use them. Uh, but I'm, I'm delighted that you make that uh, strong distinction between favoring the legalization of something and favoring it itself. 
Now, to answer your question, that's a very, very tough question. It's a continuum problem. Uh, the best way to illustrate the continuum problem is what should be the, um, what do you call it, the um, uh, statutory rape age. We know that if you go to bed with a five-year-old girl, even if she agrees, we don't think she's capable of any such agreement, you are a statutory rapist. On the other hand, if you go to bed with a 25-year-old woman, uh, whatever you are, you're not a statutory rapist because we believe that women who are 25 uh, or older are uh, capable of making that decision on their own uh, basis on the, for themselves. Well, where do you draw the line? 14, 15, 16, 17? Uh, libertarianism has no strong, harsh views on that. That's a gray area. That, that's a continuum problem. Uh, so I, I would say, uh, with all due modesty in behalf of libertarianism, we don't have to answer every question. Uh, there are gray area questions where uh, it could go either way. Uh, I mean, somewhere around 15, 16, 17, 18, or it should be the right statutory rape age. And um, and um, uh, now uh, talking about kicking uh, someone out of the house. Well, I don't know uh, if you kick. Um, well, you know, that's interesting because if you suppose you kick a five year old out of the house, are you guilty of something? Well, ah, I, I would say what you have to do with a five year old that you no longer want to take care of is you have to bring that five year old to a um um, uh, to an orphanage or to a hospital or to a church or a synagogue or a police station or a fire station or something like that. Uh, because if you just uh, leave the five-year-old out in, in the, the cold and the dark, uh, the five-year-old could die. And, um, but that's, just, that's mere, uh, what do you call it, uh, utilitarianism. And I'm not a utilitarian, although I think that libertarianism is broadly speaking uh, on the side of the angels, on the side of um, maximizing utility. Uh, the uh, my reasoning is a little different. My reasoning is, do you have a right to homestead land in the form of a bagel or a donut? Uh, a bagel or a donut has a hole in it. And let's say the hole is uh, one square mile and you homestead uh, land around the uh, bagel or the donut. And I say you do not have that right because if you do, you are precluding uh, preventing other people from getting into that um, hole in the donut, namely that one square mile that you didn't um, uh, homestead. Um, uh, the, the problem is you are now controlling land that you didn't homestead. And, and, and um, uh, just as nature abhors a vacuum, libertarianism abhors unowned land. And it abhors people controlling land that they haven't homesteaded. And you are now controlling land that you haven't homesteaded, assuming there are no helicopters and no um, tunnels and no bridges and stuff like that. Well, in a similar manner, if you um, uh, take a five-year-old or a two-year-old and, and just leave it out on the street somewhere or in the woods, you are now precluding other people from homesteading that child. Now, you can't own the child, but you can homestead the right to be the guardian of the child, and you are precluding that person. So I would say there are no positive rights, no positive obligations in libertarianism. Uh, you don't have to keep the uh, two-year-old or, or the, uh, the newborn or the five-year-old, uh, but you can't preclude other people from, uh, from taking over the guardianship of that child. So if you um, do that, you are guilty of the crime of precluding a new crime that I concocted out of the whole cloth. So to answer your question, I don't know about a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old if you kick them out what you have to do. But I do know uh, because libertarian, you can't deduce 
from the non-aggression principle and private property rights, the essence of libertarianism, you can't deduce what age um, uh, a child becomes an adult. But uh, so, you know, I'm a professor. I'm, I'm not supposed to, uh, if I can't answer a question, I, I convert it to a different question that I can answer. So I can't answer the question of, uh, uh, can you preclude, uh, can, kick, can you kick out a 14-year-old? I don't know. But I, I will say that you can kick out a two-year-old, but you can't just leave them out in the, in the street or in the woods. You have to take them to a, a shelter of some sort. Perfect. And just to give a bit more of my um, reasoning for for um, giving you these sorts of scenarios, um, often, yeah, like with this one, it's it, it, it's an incredible um, gray area in, in this philosophy. Um, and, and the reason I do this is because um, a lot of your work, um, especially when when taken at face value, um, just if someone read through the table of contents in your book, it would seem um, like a lot of the nuance has been ignored and, and the positions are very absolutist. So what I, what I want to do is try and introduce some nuance and say, okay, well, um, all, all sorts of free market transactions, um, you know, it, it, as long as they don't infringe on other people's rights or their property should be legal. Um, so I, I wanted to establish a bit of a framework for that. So when does that start being the first one? Okay. So the second scenario that I wanted to ask you about under a libertarian legal philosophy, um, a person who runs a red traffic light when no one else is at the intersection or exceeds the speed limit on an empty road, they haven't caused harm to anyone or their property, um, but the rules are there inherently for someone else's safety. So do you think that person should incur legal punishment? Well, you ask tough questions. I'm hanging up. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, I would uh, break this down into two. One, uh, the government owns um, uh, the roads. Uh, you know, you mentioned my books, uh, Defending the Unoffendable 1, 2, and 3. But I also have this book, um, I forget the title of it. It is something to the effect of why um, the free enterprise system should run the roads and the highways, mainly because the government kills about 40,000 people a year. So let me break down your question into two aspects. One, uh, private people own the roads. And I'll tell you, if I owned the road and it was three in the morning and there was a red light, well, probably I wouldn't even have red lights at, at three in the morning. I would have flashing red lights, which means you have to stop, or yellow light, which means you have to go slow. Um, but if I had a red light, I would uh, probably um, uh, have some rules uh, of uh of um, common sense saying, you know, if there's a red light, stop and look both ways. And if there's nobody coming, go. Uh, on the other hand, if you had a private road and, and you were um, uh, a little different than me and, and you said, look, you go through a red light, I'm going to kick your butt. Well, then uh, whatever the uh, rules of the road are, you have to obey. Now we have the government owning roads, and I think uh, the government is an illegitimate institution, and therefore um, uh, anything that they say is um, you have to take with a grain of salt. I mean, just because the government says something doesn't mean that you have to abide by it. Uh, now, there are certain things that the government says that you have to abide by, namely uh, they have rules against murder, rape, theft, arson, kidnapping, and those are very good rules. And uh, just because the government uh, promulgates them doesn't mean you should ignore them because they are just. On the other hand, uh, the government has all sorts of other rules like minimum wage law and uh, rent control and um, uh, taxes and, and, uh, and red lights. 
And uh, I think that, that there um, you should just, um, uh, if you can get away with it, get away with it because they have no justice on their side. It's just a pragmatic thing. If you think that they've got cameras on that red light, you, you probably shouldn't do it because they'll give you a ticket. Uh, but now to answer your question, uh, should you be allowed to uh, flaunt government rules that are um, uh, illegitimate? Yeah, flaunt them all. Uh, and not just red light rules, but um, uh, rent control and minimum wage and uh, occupational waste licensure and, and all sorts of other government rules. You would be justified in flaunting because they're a man-made or government-made rules and they're illegitimate. On the other hand, there are certain rules that are compatible with libertarianism and you'd better obey them, even though the government um, uh, promulgates them, say, uh, laws against murder, rape, theft, arson, kidnapping, uh, uh, fraud, whatever. Well, um, yes, certainly. I, I see where where you're coming from here. Um, I'm, I'm starting to get a better sense of, of your philosophy and, and what actually underlines all, all the people and the scenarios that you defend here. So, um, so far, I think it's been pretty black and white. Um, but but the scenarios here have been so far quite hypothetical. Um, what I want to do now um, is take a a scenario that is a very a very strong likelihood um, in the future and see um, what what you would think of such a a, a scenario. So, as as a simple example, um, if you dump poisonous waste into a river that runs through your property and onto someone else's property. It's widely accepted under a, a libertarian legal philosophy that, that should be punishable because you've infringed on someone's security in their property. Uh, however, if we extrapolate this out onto a broader scale, um, for example, emissions from cars pollute the air that we all breathe, and it can be argued that that harms the health of society and everyone that, that resides in society. So would the government then be justified in the future um, in passing legislation that, say, um, prohibits or punishes people from driving if they drive gas powered cars um, it, it, under the same argument. And, and would that be compatible with a, a libertarian philosophy? Well, uh, here I resort to what Murray Rothbard, who is my mentor and my friend, um, uh, my leader, uh, Mr. Libertarian. Uh, he wrote this uh, excellent, exquisite, um, uh, long article in the Cato Journal, uh, which has been reprinted uh, several places. Uh, I forget the exact title, something like Air Pollution or the Libertarian Theory of Air Pollution. And uh, what he says is, look, uh, I'll put this in my own words, uh, obviously. Uh, look, if I take my garbage, my eggshells and orange peels and, um, uh, I don't know, coffee grounds, and, and I just dump them on your front lawn, uh, what will we say? What will we say about me? We say that I'm a trespasser. And uh, if you're a nice neighbor, you come to me and say, "Have you lost your mind? Uh, cut it out." And if you're not such a nice neighbor, or if I've done it once or twice, um, more than uh, once, uh, you call the cops, and the cops properly arrest me for trespassing. Would it matter if I, instead of dumping uh, the raw garbage onto your front lawn, I first incinerate it and then send this very same garbage over, not in the form of eggshells and orange peels and coffee grounds and um, uh, waste other waste products, but uh, incinerated in, in, in the form of little dust particles? Would that make any difference? No, it's the same thing, whether it's uh, macro um, uh, uh, pollution or micro pollution. Uh, it's just um, a, a violation of rights. And uh, it ought to be stopped. And what Murray is saying is that the government um, uh, 
passed laws saying that um, uh, air pollution is not actionable. Well, if, uh, if air pollution is not actionable, well, then we're going to be up to our armpits in garbage. So the, the libertarian analysis of this is first the government passes a law uh, saying you can't sue for this. And then it says, oh, my God, uh, there's market failure. Capitalism is failing. These people are polluting all over the place, uh, which is not true. It's uh, because uh, the government passed the law saying you could do that uh, with impunity. Uh, and then they have the Clean Air Act uh, to so, uh, clean up the issue. But uh, what Murray is saying is what we ought to be able to sue. Now, the problem with suing uh, for a car is that a car – uh, produces an infinitesimally small amount. I mean, it's almost like exhaling. We all exhale. And what are you going to do? Sue each other for exhaling? Um, no, obviously we can't. Well, exhaling is different than uh, than car pollution because uh, uh, we have homesteaded um, the right to exhale. Our parents did it all all the time, and our great grandparents did it. But the the problem with suing each uh, and every last automobile owner, uh, I don't know how many uh, there are. Maybe a hundred million in the in the country. It would be um, awkward, to say the least. So uh, what Murray says is, let's privatize all the highways and the roads and the streets. And then instead of suing each uh, car owner, each automobile owner, what you do is you sue the highway owner. Uh, uh, it's sort of like if a nightclub next door to you is making noise at three in the morning, you don't sue, sue each reveler for making noise. Uh, noise pollution would be analogous to uh, air pollution, uh, you sue the, um, the nightclub, uh, the macro. Uh, well, then you sue the, um, uh, the highway, and the highway in turn will then, uh, in order to protect itself, will make a rule uh, with regard to all of its customers. And it might say something like, look, if you don't want a catalytic converter and you want to use lead uh, uh, gasoline, that's okay, uh, but we're going to charge you uh, quadruple. On the other hand, uh, we don't want to get sued for this. And, you know, if one or two cars do that, um, uh, de minimis in, in law, you, you can't sue for, um, uh, for um, negligible things. So if one or two or five cars do that, no big deal. Uh, but the road owner then would turn around to its customers and say, hey, if you want to get a reasonable price to get on my road, you better, uh, you better um, not pollute too much. Uh, and, and that way we solve the problem not by suing each individual automobile owner, but by suing the road owner. And the road owner in turn makes rules for the uh, clients and then the clients behave and then we solve the problem that way. Okay, um, that, that makes uh, a, a lot of sense because I mean, e even in that scenario, um, th there's, there's been a lot of legislation introduced in Congress to you know, get rid of um, fossil fuels. There's been timelines, anything from as soon as 10 years to the next 30 years um, where we, we start to get rid of fossil fuels and, and all sorts of um, things that may, may potentially cause, cause damage to our environment. Um, so that's something that was interesting. Um, that's something that, you know, the, the traditional right and the left um, uh, it, it, uh, politically tend to, tend to disagree on, um, you know, the timeline, whether or not um, that, that sort of action is necessary. Um, but from a libertarian point of view, I wanted to understand from you whether or not such an action, you know, would be would be punishable. And in fact, whether such legislation could be justified uh, under this philosophy. So, yeah, um, I think when you put it like that, um, you know, well, if, if I dump waste on my neighbor's lawn, that's 
illegal, but if I incinerate it and send it over his house, then why should it not be punishable in the same way? Um, so yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so the final scenario that I wanted to ask you about, and uh, fair warning, this is a tricky one, um, is how a libertarian legal philosophy would apply to a case of broader societal good. So for example, um, conscription or a mandatory military service in nations such as South Korea or Israel that face the imminent threat of war. So although it deprives people, um, especially a lot of young men and women that are conscripted into the army um, of their rights, Many argue that the very fact that such nations maintain a large military presence deters their enemies from waging war. So should the government, under a libertarian philosophy, be allowed to conscript people into the army if it directly prevents a conflict that would inevitably cost thousands or even millions of people their lives? Well, um, I uh, am against the draft. You know, it's interesting. Um, uh, one of my first articles when I was a young man in the late 60s um, was over the volunteer military that Milton Friedman was favoring. And uh, the reason he was favoring it is because he thought that the, um, it would make the army more efficient to, to have uh, volunteers rather than draftees. And uh, my analysis of that was, well, before we decide uh, how um, how to raise the army, we should uh, decide whether uh, what the army is going to do is justified or not. And I thought that it was unjustified for the U.S. to be in Vietnam, uh, as um, um, uh, what was the name of that boxer? Muhammad Ali once said, uh, no Vietnamese ever called me the N-word. Uh, namely, uh, what did the Vietnamese ever do to us? They're 10,000 miles away. Uh, why are we there? Um, and, 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 you know, uh, you don't want an efficient army if the army is doing something bad. Uh, you want an inefficient army. So uh, not that I favored the draft, but I, I oppose the volunteer military because uh, we, we should decide first if it's justified or not. Now, let's, with that as background, let's stipulate, for argument's sake, arguendo, that the Israeli and the South Korean um, uh, uh, are just, uh, uh, Taiwanese, whoever, are just in uh, defending themselves against their enemy. Their enemies, uh, uh, let, let's take Israel. Israel is a, a just society. Uh, it's not a perfect society, but it's no worse than any other, even though the UN is always blaming them for everything. And they don't blame uh, other um, uh, countries that do uh, 10 times worse than Israel. Let's stipulate that Israel is a just society and that the uh, enemies of Israel who want to attack it from within or from without are unjustified. And therefore, uh, Israel is entitled to a, a justly entitled to a, a military. How best to raise it? Uh, well, one way is the draft, and that's what they do now. They draft uh, pretty much everyone, except for uh, Hasidic um, uh, people that they, um, uh, men who they give a, a, a buy uh, on the ground of um, a religious uh, benefit. How else could they raise an army? Uh, could they raise an army voluntarily? I think they could, and I think it would even be more efficient. Uh, look, any able bodied um, uh, Israeli man. Uh, although, uh, forget about women for the moment, they complicate the issue. Uh, take a 25-year-old man, uh, an Israeli man, and um, if he's not in the army, uh, uh, whether active or a reserve, it doesn't matter, uh, nobody's going to serve him. 
uh, nobody's going to uh, uh, marry him. Nobody's going to date him. Uh, the grocery stores won't uh, serve him. The restaurants won't serve him. Uh, I think that the, um, uh, the situation is such that um, uh, either he should emigrate, which he can do now, or he should uh, join the military. Uh, because uh, I, I think that social pressure would be so severe against any able-bodied um, um, uh, Israeli man uh, of uh, the right age, I guess somewhere between 18 and 60 or whatever the age is, um, uh, to be in the army. So I, I don't see why you, you have to um, uh, uh, have a, a, um, a draft. I, I think a volunteer military would be much more efficient um, uh, than a, um, uh, a drafted army uh, in, in various ways. Uh, some of them, I, I teach a course in labor economics and we go over uh, the fact that, you know, with a volunteer military, you're going to get the right people. You're not going to get um, uh, the, the wrong people in the wrong jobs because the market is more efficient than uh, coercion and the draft is coercive. So uh, my answer is, uh, yes, uh, the Israeli uh, army uh, should be raised, and, and it's a defensive uh, uh, army. Uh, we're stipulating this, and it would be much better to do it uh, voluntarily than uh, coercively through the draft. Well, um, especially from a, a labor economics point of view, that's a that's an interesting situation with a volunteer army because, for example, say a, a country like Israel um, – if the government wishes to maintain a military presence of, say, 5 million people in the army, um, ordinarily, if we view the army as, as any other employer, um, if, if they need 5 million people in the army um, and, and they have a, a shortage of workers, so they can't quite find 5 million people, um, what, would, what would usually happen is the, the price would be bid up, the, the price of labor. And eventually, you'd, you'd get to a point where... Um, the 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 salary for going into the military is so high that that a lot of people f would forego other careers and just choose to choose to join the army nonetheless. Um, so that's, that's, that's right. the uh, supply curve slope upward. The more you offer, the more likely you'll get uh, what you want. Um, but you know, it, it's interesting uh, the way the Israelis fight. Uh, Look, Israel is a first world country in terms of STEM and technology. Uh, its enemies are not first world countries. Uh, Israel always fights with the one and a half arms behind its back uh, because it's always afraid of what world opinion will say. And it, it, and it fights with um, many, many men, whereas um, uh, they don't really need all that many men. Uh, you know, if Israel wanted to do, they could pulverize uh, all the uh, all the other countries uh, that are its enemies uh, uh, very easily with high tech. You don't need that many people. All you need is um, uh, capital equipment of which they've got more and much more sophisticated than their enemies. So, you know. Uh, when you think of a lot of men, you think of going into Gaza or going into um, uh, Syria or uh, other countries with tanks and, and soldiers walking. Well, then you need a lot of men. But, uh, you know, that's one way to fight with the labor intensive um, uh, 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 modality. Uh, but um, I think the Israeli uh, has a comparative advantage, not with men, but with uh, capital equipment. So uh, they hardly need 5 million um, people in the army, uh, you know, just a couple of tens of thousands of high tech people. And uh, there's no more attack on Israel. I think um, another one, uh, another 
component to that, um, maybe not so much with Israel, but certainly in other countries like South Korea, for example, where even if even if the threat of war, I mean, they haven't been to war in over um, like like actually like been on a battlefield in over half half a century. Just the very fact that they maintain a, a massive military presence, you know, they have um, you know, uh, 10 million people on the ground marching in the parade through through the capital. Just that fact alone is enough to deter their enemies from from waging war. Um, so that's well, that's. I, I I think that Israel especially would deter um, its enemies a lot more instead of having a, a lot of men marching around uh, with uh, rifles if they um, uh, uh, had a parade with high a high tech parade. Uh, with many fewer men, uh, and that and that is if they um, if they could be trusted to actually use this. But the problem with Israel is they they don't use their um, uh, their technology. Uh, they fight with the one and three quarters arms behind their back, and that's why they keep having to fight. Look, uh, suppose um, Monaco uh, uh, started um, sending bombs into France. Um, uh, well, France wouldn't pulverize Monaco right off the bat because um, they would assume it was an accident. But if the Monaco people said, well, you know, na 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 na, we're, we're going to keep bombing you, uh, that would be the end of Monaco. Uh, suppose that um, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, Vancouver started bombing Seattle in, in uh, Canada versus the U.S. Uh, that would be the end of Canada. Uh, they wouldn't. They would get away with it once. Whereas in Israel, they, they keep doing it because the Israel, uh, the Israelis um, uh, don't um, conquer them. Uh, if and they certainly have the power to conquer them. And once you conquer them, you have a little Nuremberg trial for their leaders, and then there's no more war. But uh, think, the Israelis um, uh, keep fighting. Yeah, I, I think um, the. I think we've detracted from the the original um, premise of the question quite a bit. I think the Israel issue uh, obviously has a, a decades, if not you know, centuries long long history. It's a, it's probably one of the most complicated geopolitical issues in the world. So obviously, it's it's very hard to get into that, and I, I don't think either of us are particularly experts on that. Um, but anyway, yeah. Um, so going over those scenarios, um, th- those are all the scenarios I have for you today. And um, although many of the actions and people that you defend in your books might initially appear absurd to a lot of our viewers, as always, the essence of, of the philosophy that undergirds many of your positions lies in the nuance that I wanted to try and clarify today. So once again, thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Block. Um, thank you everyone so much for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.